0: You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. All right, 2 Samuel chapter 15. Now, ah, can, I, can I admit something to you? Can we, can we be friends here for a minute, Scott? This is one of the hardest passages to, to not, not understand necessarily, but to think about how do you teach this passage? How do you present the absolute and complete train wreck of David's family in a way that, that brings hope and joy? And I'll tell you, I, so the first hour, if you were here and you thought, man, that was really terrible. I wonder if he can recover the second hour. Um, I'm going to try. And here's what I'm going to do. Let me, let me give you some big picture here before we get into it. And then I want to read 2 Samuel chapter 15, a portion of 2 Samuel chapter 15. In 11 and 12, so we're going to look at 13, 14, 15 this morning. I'm going to summarize that. But in, the, in chapters 11 and 12, David has reached the height of his rule. He has um, expanded all the way out the boundaries of the promised land from north to south, from east to west. Everything is going David's way. And In chapter 11, he has a huge crash and burn. He ends up having an affair with Bathsheba, who is Uriah's wife. Uriah is one of his mighty men. And then what he does for the cover-up, because Bathsheba is pregnant, he has Uriah killed, sent to the front of a battle line, and killed. In chapter 12, what happens is Nathan is David's confidant and he comes to him. So how do you tell the king that he's in, you know, gross and negligent sin? And so David, he's been living with that for a year. Nathan comes, tells him a parable about a guy who has um, a rich guy. and He has a whole bunch of sheep, but he decides he needs to make a sacrifice or have a festival. And so instead of you you know, slaughtering one of his own. He goes to a guy that only has one sheep, his precious little sheep, and he takes that sheep and slaughter and, and David is furious as he hears the story. This is a terrible injustice. And in fact, what happens is in uh, David is actually going to pronounce a judgment on the man in the story because that's what kings do. They They judge for uh, the people. They, they're, they're like the, the um, you know chief justice of the, of the land. And so, what David's um, judgment is in chapter 12, it um, begins in verse 5, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he has done this thing Because he had no pity. Well, and then Nathan famously says to David in verse 7, You're the man. You're the one. Well, what's interesting is, in pronouncing this judgment, this fourfold um, recompense, David has actually judged himself. And over the next years of David's life, he will pay fourfold by the death of four of his sons. One of those sons will be the unborn child that that dies with Bathsheba from this affair. The next one will be his oldest son, Amnon, who is violently killed by his brother Absalom. Absalom will be violently killed as he gets sent to the front lines. And then Adonijah, he's going to end up getting killed by Solomon, his brother. And the fourfold judgment will end up happening to David, along with one of his daughters being violated by her brother. Virgin daughter violated. She's left desolate. He will have a son who will rise up in a coup against him. David will flee from Jerusalem. There will result in a civil war where 10,000 lives are lost. And all of that takes place in about the last 10 years of David's life. Now, there are a couple of things I want to say. So, let me Let me see if I can clear some of these things up, because these are questions that will go through your mind. One is, I thought David was pardoned by God in in chapter 12, and then he writes Psalm 51, and then he writes Psalm 32. We looked at it, and I will say David absolutely was pardoned by God. God comes, shows grace to David, does not kill David for what was uh, a capital offense, and He forgives David. But that doesn't take the consequences away from the actions of David's sin. Secondly, I will say this. There is um, in, in Exodus chapter 20, and then you find it again in Numbers, and you find it again in Deuteronomy, and what God promises to fathers, and He warns them about, here is what sin means in your life, Sin has a systemic and family effect. It, it comes in and will poison your family. Down to the third and the fourth generation. And what you see is absolutely this is David's source. Not just David's story. You know who else the story it is? It's Abraham's story. Abraham shows up, king named Abimelech. Tells his wife, hey, listen, when we go in there, we need to tell him you're my sister because if not, you know, this, this whole thing. And I know God promised me an eternal covenant and I'm going to have kids. And I don't have any kids yet. Um, and I believe God because I made an altar. But if we go there, they're going to kill me. It's kind of his thinking. So they tell King Abimelech he's his sister. And then so Abimelech then takes his wife and it's he ends up getting his wife back. But he says, why did, why did you lie to me? Abraham's a deceiver, so much so when he goes to make a covenant with him, he says, Listen, you need to do one thing for me. Swear to me, you won't lie to me. You know why you make people swear they won't lie? Because they're liars. Guess what? Abraham's son Isaac does. Goes into the land, finds a king named Abimelech, tells him Rebekah is his sister does exactly the same thing. Abraham's grandson, you know what he will be known as? The deceiver, Jacob. Deceives his father Isaac, pretending to be Esau. He will then deceive his father-in-law to be Laban. Laban turns around, deceives him, thinks he marries one girl, marries another. That's a story for a different day ends up with two wives in the mix, and it becomes a mess, a systemic mess through the children of Jacob, the tribes of Israel. It's not the only place. You see it over and over and over again. Now, let me address one more thing, and then we're going to get into the text. And I have to remember, I'm not going till 1215 today, all right? So... Try to remember that. What about this sends into the um, fourth, third, and fourth generation? Two things I want to say about that real quickly. One, um, it is a warning in the Old Testament, absolutely. At the same time, when it is given, it is also a grace. There is a grace in that it won't go past the third or the fourth generation. And if you're sitting here and wondering, well, what does that mean for me? How am I supposed to interpret that? And for a long time, I will tell you, I lived with this great fear, uh, you know, the sins of my father would be visited upon me. Maybe you have to, maybe you like, or as the father, it's like, oh, what's going to happen to my kids, you know? Let me say that one of the great passages in the Old Testament is in Jeremiah 31 where God, through Jeremiah, announces that the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Jacob, not like a covenant I made with their fathers. And You know how that begins? The two verses before the covenant begins say this, In those days they shall no longer say, The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. They're no longer going to say, look, the fathers ate the sour grapes and the children taste the bitterness. No longer is that going to be the case. But everyone, it says in verse 30, shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. You will stand before God and give an account for your life. Everyone is judged as their own life. You, you no longer in the new covenant, bear or responsible for the sins of the Father. Is that clear? It's old, old Testament, it plays itself out. Now listen, your children are your children. And apples do not fall far from the tree. And there is something for us this morning to make sure we absolutely understand. Look in 2 Samuel chapter 15. Look at at verse 1. It says this. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. So you got to say, okay, what does after this mean? After what? Well, let me tell you what after what. In chapter 13, Absalom's brother Amnon, the oldest son of David, ends up um, violating Tamar. It was a whole deception deal with a friend named Jonadab who's, who's wise, but he's not wise. He's actually a crafty like a serpent. And he sets this whole deal up. They trap Tamar. He violates Tamar. Tamar and Amnon are both children of David, but they are half-siblings. Tamar has a full sibling named Absalom. They share the same mom. She comes to Absalom. Absalom says, hey, what happened? She says, well, you know what happened. Everybody knows about Amnon. He's a child born with a silver spoon in his mouth. All he does is lay around and is served by the women of the court and and does, does nothing to contribute to society. David would have known that. But David doesn't deal with it. This is what happens. Absalom is seeing David's angry, but David's not dealing with it. Absalom takes matters into his own hands. He waits two years, plots the time, takes him Amnon and all the other brothers. Remind you of Jacob's sons. They go out to the sheep shearing. They have a party. They get Amnon drunk. And then Absalom orders his execution. And brother kills brother. David didn't deal with Amnon, and then David's not going to deal with Absalom. Absalom will go, he will flee north to Geshur, where his mother's family is. His grandfather's the king of the north up there. And he goes there for three years because David would not deal with Absalom. Now, let me tell you, David. David, when Amnon, he hears the report of Amnon, he gets angry. What he should have done is he should have executed Amnon. That's what he should have done. As the king, executing justice, should have had his son Amnon executed. But he didn't want to. And then when Absalom goes and takes matters into his own hand and slays his brother, David is the king. To deal with it justly. And he does not. He allows his son to be exiled for three years. They never talk about it. And then in chapter 14, um, Joab crafts this plan. This woman comes, tells uh, David a whole tall tale about two sons she has and all of this stuff. Um, One kills the other and, and then David says, Hey, wait a minute, this sounds really familiar to me. Did Joab put those words in your mouth? And she said, yeah, he did. David says, okay, I get the picture. Tells Joab to go to Gesher to get Absalom, bring him to Jerusalem. But he won't see him for two years. Puts him away in an apartment, won't see him for two years. Will not deal with the problem. April the 2nd, 1978. Remember that day? Nobody. It was a Sunday, it was a Sunday night. April's. No. Very first episode of Dallas came on. <laughs> the world was introduced to the Ewings in Texas, where things are bigger bolder and more complicated. And the episode storylines didn't need to have anything to do with themselves. One week Bobby would be kidnapped, beaten up, show up the next week, everything's just fine. (laughs) Not a scar on him. The best one was that Pam at one time had an ex-husband. You'd think I watched this, I was only nine years old, but she had an ex-husband, he shows up, says, Hey, we used to be married. By the end of the show, he disappears. You never heard from him again. A larger-than-life real people drama became the most watched TV series of all time. In fact, the second most watched, the first most watched episode at the time in 1980, you know what it was: it was the Who Shot J.R.? Ninety million people tuned in to find out. In America, 360 million around the world. The second most watched program in history behind the season finale of MASH, all right? David's family, it's the Ewings, brother against brother, Fighting and corruption and power, and this is what's going on. Well, it gets to um, uh, the end of chapter 14. What happens? Let me tell you. David finally brings um, Absalom into his presence. Absalom says, Look, you've left me in a place of limbo. Either show me justice or show me mercy. Either pardon me. Or kill me. But you've left me in a limbo. And this limbo is that you won't forgive me. Nor will you kill me. You won't confront my my wrong. You won't pardon it either. There is an inaction that David shows. That becomes absolutely devastating. To his family. He didn't deal with Amnon should have probably years before the Tamar accident. He won't deal with Absalom. And leaves him in this limbo. And then what happens is Absalom will absolutely lose respect for his father. He will see his, the weakness of his father. And in chapter 15, after this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And you know what he's going to do? He is beginning a systematic coup to unseat his father from the throne and take over the kingship. In verse 2, Absalom used to rise very early, stand beside the way of the gate. And when the man had a when a man had a dispute, any man had a dispute, to come before the king for judgment, that's what you did. You came before the king for judgment. Absalom would call to him and say, Hey, from what city are you from? And when they said, Well, your servants from such and such a tribe in Israel, and Absalom would say, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. king's weak he's undecisive he doesn't know whether to show mercy or show justice he is caught in an absolute limbo then absalom would say verse 4 oh that i were the judge in the land then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and i would give him justice Whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. And then Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. When I was in Geshur, I made a vow. If the Lord ever lets me come back to Jerusalem, I'll go make a vow. I'll go to Hebron. He wants David's approval to go, and David says, sure, go. Um, In verse 9, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. And then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were all invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices he sent for Ahithophel, the Gileite, David's counselor from the city of Galilee, and a conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. David will have to flee Jerusalem after this for fear of being hunted down and killed. Let me tell you what's going on. Ever read Hamlet by Shakespeare? High school? Maybe the Cliff Notes? It opens up, and Hamlet meets the ghost of his father through a series of events. His father has recently been murdered. His mother has recently remarried. The guy she married was Hamlet's uncle, her father's brother. Turns out, the ghost of Hamlet's father shows up and tells him, Hey, listen, all of that was a conspiracy. My uncle had me murdered so that he could marry my mother because they were in an illicit affair Hamlet, you've got to make things right. He does a little investigation. But the whole play, this famous play of of Shakespeare, which many believe is retelling the story of King David in, in his day. The whole play is Hamlet's absolute agony of inaction. He will not act upon what he knows. He lives in limbo. He's compromising between justice and between mercy. And he does not know what to do, so he does nothing. Then the famous line in Act 3, scene 1, to be or not to be, as he contemplates, I, I can't deal with this. I don't know how to live in limbo anymore. I might as well die to be or not to be the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns. And then he declares conscience does make cowards of us all. When Hamlet finally acts, he ends up rashly killing the wrong person. It sets off a series of very unfortunate events. By the end of the play, I hate to spoil it for you, everybody's dead. Except the narrator. Inaction created devastation. Well, here's the the issue. You have a tension in David's life between justice and mercy. He's... He's caught in between the need for one and the desire for the other. And what he does is he tries to find a compromise between the two. See, here's the deal. On one hand, David had known mercy. He, he, when he deserved justice, God granted him mercy and grace. We find, though, in Psalm 51, Psalm 32... 2 Samuel chapter 12. David's repentant. He's confronted with his sin. He knows he's wrong. He goes and repents before the Lord. Here's the problem. Absalom showed no sign of repentance, nor did Joab, who was guilty of some other things David didn't deal with either. Amnon showed no sign of repentance. And Ecclesiastes 3 declares, there is a time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. Now, don't get your hopes up. You are not entrusted with the authority of a king to exact justice all on your own. You don't get to do that. You are not David. You are not the king. But there is a tension. What about the tension between justice and mercy? You know, the reality is that is the divine tension that goes back to the foundations of the world. You know, God is holy and just and righteous and pure and without blemish. Perfect in every way. And as holy as He is, He is also loving. And His holiness does not in any way diminish his love, but his love in no way diminishes his holiness. And there is this divine cosmic tension between the justice and righteousness of God and the love and the grace and the mercy of God. And yet, there can be no limbo. You see, I think, unfortunately, many people want to live in a place of limbo. See, I know God's holy and righteous and just and yet, but that's the God of the Old Testament. God of the New Testament is the God of love. And listen, I'll just just keep my distance from God. He'll keep his distance from me. We won't ever really have to talk about it. And at the end of the day, I hope to do more good than I do bad, and it'll all turn out for me. You are placing yourself in a place of limbo. There is no limbo. You will either meet the righteous, holy, just wrath of God. Or you will come to be a recipient of His grace and His mercy. But there is no middle ground. reason, the way that God resolves the tension between His grace and His mercy is He sends His Son to die in our place. And that on the cross, heaven and earth meet. Justice and grace, righteousness and mercy meet. When Jesus takes on all of our sin, all of our rebellion, and then the righteous, holy perfect wrath of God now is poured out on His Son so that justice is satisfied. And at the same time, Jesus will rise from the dead and be able to offer us new life. There is no double jeopardy. Your sin paid for. Your rebellion sacrificed for. Your life redeemed through the death of of Jesus David could not resolve the tension we need a greater David Jesus is the one that resolves the tension so what do we do in the meantime we are not in the place of being those who can execute judgment I mean, unless you're a judge or a king or you're in a place like that Husbands, you don't get to execute judgment against your wives. Wives against your husbands. And yet we must deal with those things that come up in our relationships. The longer we wait, the deeper the ruts we carve, and we create limbo. What you don't which we miss from the text, doing it the way we did. But I encourage you, read 2 Samuel 13 to 15. There are two years that pass, then three years that pass, then four years that pass, then two years that pass. And it never goes away. It's like it goes to the gym, you know, drinks whey protein and just gets stronger. All sorts of reasons we want to put off conflict. We want to ignore issues. we've got to be willing to enter into them. We can enter into them, not in limbo. We can enter into them in the presence of God. Husbands, when you feel like you have been disrespected by your spouse, by your kids, deal with it. Find a time to say, hey, I I don't really like that. I, I may have taken you wrong here. If you sit on it and it simmers, it'll only generate resentment and bitterness, and bitterness is a tangled web to try to unweave. Either have a prayer-filled conversation with the one who you think is, um, has hurt you or wronged you, or find someone to mediate that conversation, Or as my friend Eric Barton says, or turn and face the cross and allow it to be nailed there, dead. Forgive. Wives, at some point your husband is going to treat you as though you are not the treasure that you are. I hear about husbands like that. Well, it's probably because he's so bound up in his own insecurity and his own failures. You might have the tendency to think he doesn't love me anymore. If that's the case, talk about it. Prayer-filled conversation that says, Honey, do you still see me? Because I need you to. I am not here to pass judgment. But I am here to make sure that this doesn't turn into resentment and bitterness in my heart. And if that doesn't work, find somebody to mediate that conversation for you. You don't get to turn into the judge. You don't get to execute a judgment. We are called to forgive, to love. Have the conversation or find someone to help you have it. You know, Tapestry Counseling Center is right there across the way. We have the very best counselors in East Texas. Come let them help you. Parents, sometimes it's easier to just let it go and say something like, well, it'll all work out. Oh, I don't want to have that conversation. I don't want to start that fight. I don't want to get into it with them. You ever felt that way? Dave? It did. Parents, that's lazy and it is selfish. And it will result, if it goes on too long into a dysfunction, you might not be able to undo. We owe it to them, to our children and to our grandchildren, to have hard conversations that say, you know what? I love you, but this is wrong. I love you and this is the line and you will not cross it. And I love you and I want to show you grace but the reality is it's not my love and my grace that you need the most. It's the love and the grace of God and me telling you no. Be mad at me. Come to the end of yourself and know the grace of God. There's a lot to say. End with two things. There's a speech, Jacob Neusner, old Jewish scholar. who was real controversial when he was alive. Just died a couple of years ago. In 1981, he was a professor at Brown University, and he found himself kind of fed up with the generation that was coming up. I can only imagine how that continued to progress in his mind. But he, he um, sets about at the time of graduation, and he writes a graduation speech. It was not one he was going to give. It was a mock graduation speech a friend of his encouraged him hey you ought to send that into the Brown uh, school paper so he sends it in to the Brown school paper it gets published and it absolutely sets a firestorm across the campus every student's offended every faculty's offended it goes into the national news never got spoken but it was read and preserved Here's how Newsner starts it Says I apologize to you but the faculty has no reason to take pride in the graduating class because we did not prepare you for the real world. We failed to be rigorous, and we did not tell you the truth, that your work is shoddy, you are boring, and it was all inadequate. They probably didn't have the rate my professor thing going on back then. Furthermore, we put up with late papers, petty arguments, we gave easy B's, We did not distinguish the excellent from the ordinary. And despite your fantasies, it's not even because we wanted to be liked by you. We just didn't want to be bothered. We've prepared you for a world that does not exist. Outside, quitters are not heroes. And one more thing. He ends it this way. Try not to act towards your co-workers and bosses as you have acted towards us. I mean, when, when they give you what you want that you have not earned, don't abuse them. Don't insult them. Don't act out with them your dreadful relationships that you have with your parents. This, too, we tolerated. and As I said, it was not to be liked. Few professors actually care whether or not they're liked by peer-paralyzed adolescents. Fools so shallow as to imagine professors care not about education but about popularity. It was, again, to be rid of you. So go. Please, unlearn the lies we taught you and to live. It takes a lot of courage, to be honest. It can take a lot of energy to enter into the fray. It can take a lot of prayer and soul searching to come to a place of forgiveness in the midst of honesty. And yet, as believers, we're called there because limbo is the absolute worst thing we can do. The God of the universe cannot tolerate limbo, not with us. And not us with each other. Sins are terribly destructive things, so is guilt. What we do not confront, it will grow. What we do not forgive will poison. And the consequences can be horrific. Well, is there a ray of hope in here? I'll tell you there's one ray of hope, and it is in chapter 15. In verse 24, what happens is David is fleeing Israel, I mean fleeing Jerusalem. And the priest grabs the Ark of the Covenant. They're going to take it with David. David, if, if you're going, then the presence of God needs to go with you. And David turns around and says, take the Ark of the Covenant back. presence of God remains with his people. David at this point is is enduring what he is not. It's not his fault. There's a coup against him. He's having to leave. David says this, take the ark of the covenant back. And then he said, uh, carry the ark back to the city of God. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he'll bring me back and let me see both it and its dwelling place. But he says, if he says, I have no pleasure in you, Behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. David puts his trust, his life, in the hands of God. And then what he does is he takes off his shoes, begins to weep, and climbs up across the Kidron Valley, just a few hundred yards away from his city, up to the Mount of Olives and begins to weep, and to pray, and to mourn over Jerusalem. One thousand years later, the greater David, the son of David, the true king, the son, eternal son of God, will will weep over Jerusalem, and climb to the Mount of Olives, Then that king will come down off the mountain and will bear scars on his hands, his feet, and his side. He's not weeping over his own sin. He had none. He weeps over the sin of the people. All of those struggling with sin. He weeps over the sin of those that will reject him. He weeps over us. Comes down. Climbs a. Another mountain hung on a tree and the scars he bears will not be the ones that he deserved they were the scars that were meant for us and by enduring those scars he endures them so we don't have to And in the end peace in the end peace returns only when the king's son is hung on a tree suspended between heaven and earth Relieving the tension between justice and mercy. Righteousness and love. He dies for your sin. Lays dead in a grave for three days and rises to new life. And everything you are and were and will be was put on him so that everything he is, you could become. I'll just say this morning, if you're in limbo. With God. Well, maybe God doesn't see that. Maybe, maybe He doesn't care about that. Maybe, you know, I mean, I'm not as bad as everybody else I know. There is no limbo. At the end of the day, you will either face the just, righteous, infinite, holy wrath of God or you will be reconciled to Him by the grace, mercy, and love of His Son. But there is no in between. You become a child of God by trusting in the sacrifice of Jesus. Not in anything you can do. Not in anything you've ever done or will do. It is all of what Jesus has done. He's the mediator. He's the one who relieves the tension. It is through him that we receive the grace of God. And It's coming to him and saying, you know what? I am a sinner. I am a sinner. I cannot save myself. I have lived in sin and rebellion. In fact, I was born this way. I don't even know when it started. And there is no hope for me outside of what Jesus has done. Let me invite you this morning. If you're in limbo, step out of limbo into the light, into the grace. Become this morning, even today, a child of the living God, the God who created you. If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, thanks for the morning we have. Thank you.